What is the world that we live in? Some people have said it's like a great machine, or it is a big watch that has been set by a watchmaker. But what if the world is actually a game? This week on Board Game Faith, the bi-weekly podcast on the intersection of religion, spirituality, and board games. I'm not going to cut this part out. No, I'm not no. going to cut this part out. I'm dun, not going to cut this part Don't cut I'm it out. I'm not going to cut this part out. Wiggy, I'm, wiggy. Putting, I'm putting on my dancing glasses. Oh, I, you know, on. you're serious when you're putting on your dancing glasses. We have, we've kind of gotten in the habit of dancing, haven't we, to our theme song every week? We have. That's the yeah, new clap. Yeah. It's the new clap. And you know, it's, it doesn't require like secret gnosis, like secret inside knowledge. Um, just cause everyone can dance, right. To, everyone to, can um, dance. to, to, um, like, I just, I mean, I'm just kind of moving my hands a little bit. That's about the most I can do for dancing, but, Pretty much. um, our dear, our dear listeners, I hope wherever you are, you're, you're, you're welcome to dance to the theme song too. Speaking of which we should probably say. Hello and welcome, dear listeners. We're so glad to have you joining us today. Hello. My name is Daniel Hilty. My name is Kevin Taylor. And we are talking this week about Jürgen Moltmann. And we, this is part two. So we did a prior episode about his theology of play. And we got up through about page 14. Is that right? I think so. It is a, uh, a, a wonderful and uh, thick with meeting dense book and so yeah I, I just the first 14 pages took quite a while to talk about last time yeah he's he's obviously well read and is moving through lots of different ideas and some of them are a little dated at this point so you have to do a, a little work to figure out who he's arguing with and what kind of fights he's trying to pick um so yeah, that's it's given us a lot of great material and and provokes some thoughts. Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, Kevin, it occurs to me we didn't talk about this beforehand, but uh, for listeners who might be tuning in to this episode before hearing the first episode about Jurgen Moltmann, might be helpful just to talk a little bit about who is this guy, Jurgen okay. Moltmann, right? Yeah, hey, Daniel, so, Daniel, yeah, Daniel, yeah, yeah. Who is yeah, this Kevin. guy? Hey. Um, who's that cat? Yeah, yeah. Um, Jürgen Moltmann um, is a, a very prominent um, Christian theologian, uh, Protestant Christian theologian out of Germany um, fr- of the 20th century and the 21st century as well. I, we mentioned the last episode that I think we were both, um, we didn't realize that he was still alive. And it's, and he's, I think he's well into his 90s, but still alive. And, and, um, and I, I think most people would agree, at least here in the, in the Western hemisphere, in the Western part of the world, that um, he's one of the most uh, prominent and well-known uh, living theologians uh, in the Christian tradition uh, today. He's a Protestant, it, right? He is. Yep. Yep. He's Lutheran, I guess we would say, right? I think that's probably right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What we maybe could call the evangelical church in, in Germany. Right. But yeah, yeah. And he's written um, 
far and wide on all sorts of theological topics. But one of his um, writings that is uh, especially relevant to this podcast, but also especially hard to find, is a uh, a little a little book, a little almost kind of extended manuscript titled "Theology of Play." Theology of Play, right? And uh, so, so we're going through this on multiple episodes. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So if you are interested in reading this. It, it's not in print anymore, but if you go to a library, especially university, or you might there might be a, a seminary or, or some kind of religious institution, or even a church might have this on a bookshelf. It's the kind of thing that probably got printed and had a print run and, and was distributed and just never never gained traction. So, it, yeah. but it's not in the public domain yet, so you're not able no. to just read it for free as a PDF, unless it's some dark part of the uh, dark web. Right. Which, Which we has don't Daniel's credit card. His, yeah, Daniel's still trying <laughs> no. to get his MX account closed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and yet it's a very well-known book. I was surprised. Um, Is it? I never well, heard of it. More than I thought. Yeah. At the last, um, in the last episode, we talked about this retreat that I got to be a part of out in Colorado uh, about spirituality and play. And I, um, and um, one of the participants there said, oh yeah, I'm still trying to find a copy of, of Jürgen Moltmann's Theology of Play. And then another participant who was with an earsh- earshot, she said, yes, I've been trying to find Jürgen Moltmann's Theology of Play. And so at least in, in the right circles, in, in certain circles, it's very, it's, uh, it's almost kind of like the Holy Grail of, uh, of theological treatises on uh, on the theology of play that and um, um, uh, Mr. Bean's big happy playtime book, mm-hmm. yeah, and and Daniel's memoirs, Volume One, <laughs> a softly moving f- wind, <laughs> which he doesn't explain the title till the very end. You was, have to slog yeah. through the first 500 pages and then yeah. you get to yeah. a softly, softly moving wind uh, through my head. <laughs> That's right. Just <laughs> echoing, echoing through the, the, the great empty chasms of my head. Um, right. So anyway, so, this, so yeah, so that's theology of play and that's Jürgen Moltmann in a, in a, in a nutshell. And this is the most significant theologian that's written on play that I know of and readers, if you know, or listeners, if you know of someone else, let, I'm, I'm sure others mention it in passing at places, but this is the most focused, notable work. There have been some books come out recently about history of games or philosophy of games. And so game theory has been of interest, but I don't know of a theologian that's explored it. Now, play was popular among the German philosophers and romantic period, the thinkers back in the 19th century, Schiller and others, but they are thinking more of as play. And even I think Moltmann's thinking more of childlike play and joy and wonder. I don't know if they're speaking of organized gaming. That's Mm -hmm. one question I have Mm -hmm. of this book, right? right? Like, is he thinking about chess? Has he played Monopoly at this point? Probably. Mm, This book was been around for a long time. Yeah, but he doesn't um, seem to ever reference an actual game, kind of. Maybe he's just thinking of Duck, Duck, Goose type childlike games. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, um, yeah, you're right. There's, uh, 
Schiller has this great quote about we're never more human than we are than we when when, when we play, and, and you know, so like like you said, you you kind of find these little snippets of statements about play and the value of play. I remember there's a little bit there's something in the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer too, but it seems like he is by far the most famous, as you said, theologian who who has an extended treatment on this on the subject. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not just messing mentioning it in passing. He is kind of yeah, he's uh, um, which which maybe to get into the subject, if if that's okay with you, are you okay if we if we dive in, Kevin? Is that I don't know. Yeah, I'll find out. Okay, okay. If I'm got, not on a blink like this, okay, I will look for your blinking. That was a very subtle. It was, was very it? subtle. Was for those different. of you who are who are uh, who are listening and not watching the video, Kevin just did the most the most amazingly subtle blink. It was uh, right. It's very it was, different blink. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, speaking of Schiller, I think Schiller's discussion of the value of play is part of uh-huh. a larger work on aesthetics, which I've okay. never read, but I've heard about. But that's a theme that um, that Moltmann talks about. That, and that early on in this work, he he contrasts the world of what he says is theology and ethics with what he calls the world of faith and aesthetics right mm-hmm. so theology systematic thinking about god ethics system of thinking about how we should live our lives versus faith which is a lot harder to define maybe like trust in the divine and then aesthetics kind of thinking about beauty and things like that and 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 moltmann seems to be pretty down on the world of theology and ethics and a pretty big proponent of the world of faith and aesthetics and um, I just I thought that was really interesting, and I'm not quite sure what to do with that to wrap my head around that. Do you have a sense, Kevin, of why why is this so important for Moltmann to to distinguish between theology and faith, ethics and, and aesthetics, and why why is he down on the first and proponent of the second? Yeah, um, I'm no Moltmann expert. Um, but my guess of what's going on is is that lingering issue of how is religion relevant in modern times and theology? Because we've got science, we have hospitals, we have doctors. In general, we're, people talk about miracles, but we don't expect miracles like the ancient world did. We don't experience them. We don't uh, we don't talk about demon possession unless it's in a movie. So you, if you read your New Testament, Jesus is is uh, casting out demons. And so it's a very different world than the world we live in. Mm. And, mm. and with those changes, religion and theology, what's its role in the world? And one mm. answer is ethics, that religion okay. and ethics, right? So the religious brings about the ethical. And that's mm. a way to argue for the place of religion that – Religion makes people more ethical. It, it bonds them together. It gives them a sense of purpose and why you should be ethical. So that's a that's one place for religion. But Moltmann wants it to be bigger than that. Mm. So I think in large mm. the larger issue, it's a question of identity of why be religious and what's the place of religious thinking, meaning theology. Is it just to have better ethics? Is it to try to go back to the ancient world of demon possession, you know, the Pope's exorcist? 
that's that movie on Netflix that I haven't I've seen. I've heard yet. about it. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, if you see the the first Exorcist, which is terrifying, that's one of the themes of that movie is, as I see it, that science can't defeat real evil. It takes religion, like it takes a it takes a religious. So so you could read you could see that movie or read that book as an argument of trying to say there's a place for religion, which is the reality of evil. I think Stephen King personally has said things like that that because of his belief in how evil the world can be, there must be a God. Interesting. Right? So that's one possibility of how religion exists in the modern world. Is it about ethics? Is it about good and evil? Or is it about creation and beauty and play? And that's where Moltmann is settling is that third option. Interesting. What do you that's think? such a what good analysis. Thoughts? I love that, Kevin. No, thank you. I mean, my oh, thoughts thanks. are just going off of yours because I you really helped to clarify that for me. Yeah, so it's almost as if Maybe Moltmann's in this world where, which is largely our world today too, where people say, you know, what's the what's the point of religion, right? What I mean, the, the, we look at we look at the Bible or whatever holy text we may be using based on whatever our our faith tradition or religion may be, and we say, oh, this is all this superstitious, supernatural stuff, right? That doesn't right. that's not really relates to the real world anymore. And so, one response to the church is, or the community of faith is to say, well, okay, it's not really about the supernatural stuff; it's about Ethics. It's about yes. trying to decide how to live your life, and so it's kind of it's it's a way of trying to sell to sell faith to the yeah. world, right? Sell religion to the world. That's so interesting, and you know what it reminds me of is to be relevant. What you said. What that reminds me of is uh, this really one of the most haunting things I've read um, is this passage in a book called "In the Name of Jesus" by Henry Nouwen. It's a very tiny book on uh, Christian leadership, and, and and by the way, this isn't just an exclusively Christian show. We we whatever your religious tradition or lack of religious tradition, you are welcome here, and we're glad that you're here. That just happens to be our tradition. Um, but um, there's this book on Christian leadership called uh, "In the Name of Jesus" by Henry Nouwen. It's very very tiny. I really like it. I recommend it for hmm, uh, kind of spiritual one. spiritual leadership. Yeah, um, but he says that one of the greatest temptations of for a Christian leader, we, we might say in this context, a, a leader of faith or spiritual tradition, one of the greatest temptations is the temptation to be relevant. Mm-hmm. And that has haunted me because on the one hand, it's like, well, yeah, of course, you know, we want, we want the world to think that religious matters are relevant and matters of faith are relevant. But on the other hand, But on the other hand, maybe there's some danger to that too, you know. And, and that's, I guess, what I hear Moltmann saying here: that when we, when we try to sell faith to the world, maybe we we get into some dangerous territory and we make it less than 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 than, than what it is. How I, I think, maybe how I've come to have some more of a sense of understanding what what maybe now and meant by that is that it's when we feel like we always have to be needed or, or when we feel like we want, when we're trying to nurture a sense of dependence upon us, right? Ourselves mm-hmm. in, in the world, you know, to say, well, clearly you need this or that, or we, you need, um, and, and it, I wonder if that's kind of the, 
the danger of of that temptation of relevance, which I hear Moltmann addressing as well. Anyway, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right. That that um, that's a great quote. The danger of relevance. That's a real temptation. On, on a certain extreme, you have to be relevant. You you can't have your or it's very difficult to have your church service in a language people don't speak, for example. So right. on a certain and level, you've got to be real. People expect air conditioning. They, ex- right, they expect to have a bulletin or have some sense of what's going to happen in the church service or use a screen or something. So there's a certain level of we have to be relevant in order to be heard. But exactly. there is a point where you go too far. And I think that one of the dangers is if religion's only about ethics, well then just be ethical. Why be religious? That, right. right. So at a certain point, if you're too relevant, there's nothing distinguishing about you and then people just shortcut you anyway. Or if, if you want to look and act like a local civic club, well then they're just going to join the local civic club or, or so, so there's gotta be something distinctive about religion. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and while, Moltmann, he's, I don't know that he's saying directly here that this is what will save religion, but I guess he's saying this is a deep component of religious expression is a understanding of play. Is that yeah. fair? Because he's going to talk about God's creation as an act of play that where we're fully human and more participating in God's life is when we engage in play. Yeah. Yeah. And if we aren't connected to those things, then we fall into the trap of working hard to play hard, which means we just kind of work hard. Right. Finding and our value resist. then in work and achievement. Right. And even play just, becomes an act of work, which is right. a danger. Right. Yeah. Because you're really yeah. playing just so you can work better on Monday. Yeah. So he's really trying to... To, to avoid that. So yeah, yeah, he's saying this is a category that religion has overlooked is is thinking about beauty and what is unnecessary. Okay. What is superfluous. So that seems to be a good a good yes. transition to this next section. So yeah, so so lead us through, Kevin. What is what is Moltmann talking about here in these first few pages of fifteen through twenty five, pages fifteen through twenty five? Yeah, it's complicated, uh, and it's yeah. it, but but I read it as that God is a God who creates and creates freely, and so this is a deep thought in I guess all Abrahamic religions that God created the world out of nothing. Um, so God freely chose to make a world that God didn't need to make. Like the world doesn't have to be here, right. and God didn't need the world. And yet God chose to create it anyway. Well, how do we understand that? It's not an act of work because if it was, it'd be like, oh, I've got to punch a clock and I've got to make some daggum birds. And Why do I have to make the world? I have to be, I, exactly. Oh, I'm so tired of making this world. The fjords are just getting on my nerves. The fjords <laughs> in Sweden? No, Finland? Norway? Norway. Norway. Fjords. I don't know how to say the word, and I'm God. Fjords. (laughs) There's so many fjords getting on my nerves. So, yes. So many fjords. Yeah. So little time. Oh, wait, I'm God. It's fine. I do have time. Oh, but it's boring. (laughs) So the the scriptures do not refer to God in that way of God 
feeling like God had to. It's not an act of work. So what is it? And and really interesting way to read it is it's an act of play, that God freely creates the world and makes it as a sense of joy. And we have not only that in Genesis 1 and 2, but then in Proverbs 8, describing wisdom, which is the strange personification of the book of Proverbs. It says, I was beside God like a master worker and I was daily his delight. This is wisdom speaking. Playing before him always. And the word there really is playing. Because I did a little research, uh, the Hebrew word. It gets translated sometimes in some translations as rejoicing. Mm. Mm. Because the translators probably thought playing sounded wrong. Mm-hmm. in this context, but the word there, at least in the normal dictionaries for ancient Hebrew is play. That's so interesting. I thought that Thanks was really interesting too. Yeah. Their discomfort yeah. with that. So yeah, I want, yeah, like the translators thought, uh, I mean, I'm just kind of hypothesizing, but maybe that the idea of rejoicing in God's presence is a little bit more um, suitable to it's the, more uh, churchy, right? the divine more presence sort of. than playing. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. don't play at church. No, we're very no. serious. It's terribly serious, which he gets into seriousness too in, in yes. a little bit. Um, I love, that. yeah. So, I, and what struck me about that section that you just summarized so well for us, Kevin, is is the similarities um, with a previous book that we've considered on this podcast, uh, "The Grasshopper" by Bernard Suits, where it also talks about the unnecessary. Unnecess- unnecessity is that a word? Unnecessariness. Unnecessity. Unnecessities. The, 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 the little unnecessities. The, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Call me Baloo. But because he also um, suits says that the essence of play is you know the uh, voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need that on a T-shirt. We talk about that so much. Um, Ooh, we do. Um, and you're right, I forgot that is the same word. And it's voluntary, which means it's unnecessary. You don't have to do it. You choose to do it. And then it's unnecessary obstacles. It's double unnecessary. Right, right, right. Which is what, which is why I think um, Moltmann says that creation is God's play, right? Because mm-hmm. like you just said, Moltmann says, it wasn't necessary for God to make the world, right? This was a, it, 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 it was, it was not necessary and yet God did it. Right. And not out of a sense, as you said, of work, of obligation. He also says it wasn't out of a sense of like God needing to do it for self-fulfillment. Right. You know, like this was, oh, I need a purpose in life. I'm going to make creation, you know, because otherwise I'm just God and I need something. It was just purely out of delight and joy and goodwill. Right. You know, and and pleasure. And uh, (laughs) the council of God says I need to get a job. So I'm going to make something (laughs) because they're judging me in the council of God's. God, Which would why mean don't that God's not God because there's a council. Like, yeah, God is not. God doesn't work for anybody. Right, right, it's right. A lovely and, and notion. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's very and, and so I, which so Moltman says that creation is God's play, right? It's creation mm-hmm. is God's out of sheer delight, desire to um, overcome an unnecessary obstacle, right? Voluntarily overcome an unnecessary obstacle, but. Montmont adds something to that, to Suits' definition, which I thought was interesting. Um, And and, and correct me if if maybe you read it differently. And I I, I don't think Montmont came came up with it. I think he 
He's quoting Huizinger here, the Dutch philosopher who wrote this book called Homo Ludens. Um, mm. um, but I, I think he says that play and creation is both unnecessary and meaningful. Yes. And I thought, so he adds this element of meaning that, that is not in Suit's definition, right? Unless you see the um, overcoming obstacles part as meaning. But, um, but he adds this element of meaning that, that play and creation are both unnecessary and meaningful. And how would you define that meaningful? What, what, what is meaningful about it? You know, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I've got a good definition, but, but I was thinking like, well, is that true? Right. And so I was thinking like, so I kind of see all this through the lens of playing games, right? Playing board games, you know, like, and so I asked myself, well, do I find that meaningful, right? Do I find it meaningful to sit down and play Caverna or, you know, Brass Birmingham or Just One or whatever. And at first it was like, well, no, it's not meaningful. That's why we do it. But then I realized I think I'm wrong. It is meaningful, right? And that it is why I do it. Um, because because then if it wasn't meaningful, I wouldn't be doing it, I don't Ooh, think. And I, right, and I, right. I don't, I don't mean that as You're a... You're not getting a, paid to do it. A You're pat on my back. To do it. Yeah. Right, right. We wouldn't, I mean, it's true for all of us. We wouldn't do it if we didn't find some meaning in it. And then that got yeah. me thinking about Victor Frankl um, <laughs> who wrote this book, you know, <laughs> Man's Search for Meaning. Um, okay. And I was um, laughing that you're name dropping so many. Awesome I don't, names. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be <laughs> name dropping. I'm sorry. Uh, then no, that got me thinking you should, about you Kevin Taylor. It's funny. Um, but, but Victor Frankl. Flavius Maximus and his comment <laughs> in the third century. <laughs> who took my um, screwdriver? <laughs> Anyway, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I did not no, no, just hijack Victor, that. No, 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 that's Victor a good question. Frankel. Victor Frankl um, <clears throat> uh, was, you know, in the um, was in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II of, of, mm. uh, of Jewish descent, and um, and he wrote this powerful book on his ref- offering reflections on his experience in, in a in a Nazi concentration camp called Man's Search for Meaning. Today we would say maybe you know humankind search for meaning or something like that um a little bit more inclusive language but um but what he argues in there is that our our primary drive is to find meaning in life the primary drive of human beings is to find meaning even when you're in a concentration camp you're trying to find meaning and 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 so if he's right then of course we're trying to find meaning when we play games you know, and, and, and so maybe, and, and so maybe Moltmann is right that the essence of play is that it's unnecessary and it's meaningful. So you were saying, asking, yeah, so what does that mean for it to be meaningful? Um, what is the meaning of meaning? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think on one level, and I'd have to read it more closely to guess what he's after. Um, the meaning is partly just within the game that these things mean something in the game. So the dice become the arbiters of how far you can move in Monopoly, right? right? And so if you have those dice in the cup holder of your car, they don't mean anything. But in the middle of the game, they have meaning because you're like, oh, I hope I get doubles and this and that happens. So a certain bit, the meaning is constructed by the game. And I think that's where Suits would agree, and he's trying to build that as well, that the obstacles have a certain meaning, you know, that you... In golf, you can't just pick up the golf ball. You have to use the little stick. 
right? right. So that has right. meaning within the game. But outside right. the game, if you found a golf ball, you would not go get a stick, you would just pick it up. Like, oh, golf ball, right? So there's that level. But I think you're right too, that it also has meaning in the sense of it's helping us discover our identities as creatures that are meant not to work, but to enjoy a world that is beautiful and mm. to enjoy one another and to enjoy God as, as uh, Maltman cites from the famous Westminster Catechism, which yeah. is a statement of belief. Westminster Cate Catechism of 1647, the purpose of being human is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And Moltmann connects that with play. How so do you, you're right. How I think you, that the meaning ties into our identity. Yeah, yeah. Which is why we like to play, and it's how, why we interact with children with play, and why adults like to play games. How would you, may I ask, how, how would you kind of connect that Westminster confession with, with play? What are, what, to, to enjoy God, to delight in God, and enjoy God forever. How, how would you, how do you see that connected with play? I, I'd have to spend, I, I'm just guessing what Moltmann's after when he cites it, but I think he's saying that that enjoyment, he's connecting that with what God did when God created the world. God said it was good. So God yeah. enjoyed, God did something that was not necessary. God only did it for its pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And games are something that are unnecessary. We only play games for pleasure. Right, right. They don't achieve anything in this world. So yes. they're unneeded. They're un that's the unnecessary bit. And, right. And I remember there's somewhere in there where Moltmann says that play, and if we understand creation as God's play, then we could say creation as well. And maybe the, the intent of the heart of God, if that's, not a bold, if that's not too bold to say, play shifts the focus away from achievement to being. Right. right. That, that the, the point ultimately of play and of creation is not achievement, but being. Um, he, he talks about this uh, Dutch biologist um, that I know that you, you, you noticed as well, who talks about the, the, I think, the demonstrative value of being. That there's just, there's a, there's, um, that there's a value in being um, that comes prior to anything we will or will not achieve in life. And, and because of that, then Moltmann has this great quote where he says, um, well, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, seeing, seeing the meaning of life only in terms of useful, of being useful, inevitably leads to a crisis. Right? Right. That if we see the meaning of life in terms of being useful, that will inevitably lead to some sort of crisis of life. Um, and that really, that really, struck home and I, I think that's really did it wise yeah yeah you want to unpack that a little or I'm not sure that I fully understand it myself um, I guess the first thing it makes me think of was at this retreat last week um, somebody brought up the the um, I, th I think in her phrase and her wording kind of the sin of ableism Right, that this 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 the sin of thinking that really our value as a human being, a value as a person, really is is only in what we can achieve and what we can produce. 
and she says, well, what does that, what does that say about um, a, a person um, who, for whatever reason, comes to a place in life where that capacity to produce in the world's eyes becomes limited or, or ends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, are we saying that that person that, that no longer has, has value, you know, has... And that's, I mean, I just, I find that as a great, great haunting question. And, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I'm just going to admit it because I want to be, want to be honest and vulnerable with, with, uh, with you, Kevin, and with our, our listeners too. You know, um, I, I've, you know, I had a season in my life where I just felt like pretty pointless and mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm I'm and you know one of the things that got me out of that was this realization that I that I could be useful, right? In 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 different situations, and so on the one hand, if I'm being honest, that did bring me comfort, mm-hmm. and and I hate to say that because I'm kind of I'm contradicting this this truth that That's I also good. believe That's in that our value is point. independent of our usefulness, yeah. But if I'm being honest, I, I found comfort in it in that moment. Yeah. And I don't like admitting that, but it, I guess I'm just trying to be honest. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Or, or No, I think that's a brilliant insight to be on, to If I'm being honest, that, that when I am feeling malaise or depressed or whatnot, getting something done is often a really great way to deal with that. If, if, yeah. as well as when I feel good about a day, it's because I can check off the things I've done. Right, so right. does that mean we've fallen for the trap of usefulness? Like it's so ingrained in us that it's just going to be hard to get out? And that may be true, but I, I would get fidgety if I just played games all the time. Like it sounds <laughs> exactly. right, but I think exactly. I would also want to, I'm not sure I can do that. Right, right. So it really right. does come down to a balance that I, I want to, do something that impacts our world usefully. I do want to be useful, but yeah, I also yeah. know that that needs to be balanced by games and and enjoying just existing, as you're saying, because at some point usefulness ends, and then what do you do? Right, right. I mean, we're doing a podcast on religion and board games because we think it's useful, right? I mean, it's kind of, it's, Ooh, I, I mean, right. I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost like we need different categories. I almost feel like we need kind of to differentiate, differentiate. Mm-hmm. Like usefulness has a role, but it's but its role is not giving us ultimate value. You know what I mean? Like it's right. maybe that's the thing. Maybe there's, um, I don't know. I don't know. But I think you're right. We do need. There is a primary need to be useful. That's like vocation, your calling. <clears throat> But it's it, a tough thing to figure out. It's a tough thing to figure out. But it, if, if your whole life is your vocation, then then sh- that's where Moltmann says then you're you're going to get stuck. I mean, you you can't right. You can't take your satisfaction from that. Yeah, you're right about the categories. And one thing I loved in the reading that I didn't know is that work. And I assume he's right here. Work for the Romans in Latin was the word for it meant non leisure. That's so interesting. Negotium. 
That's so interesting. Yeah. Negotium, negotium. Which gives us um, negotiate too, right? I assume it's negotiate. So yeah, yeah. those categories, it, it's what are you doing today? Well, I've got to do some non, non-leisure. I've got to do non-play. Mm. And then after, so that that is what, that's one answer is is to be grounded in play and existence and not be grounded in work. It reverses the assumption, the modern assumption, right. right? Where the modern assumption is the baseline is work, and we take occasional breaks to play, right? But yes. it, it, at least etymol- etymologically, there the the baseline assumption is play, and we occasionally would need to take breaks for that for work. Yeah. yeah, like what if you met strangers and instead of asking, well, what do you do? What's your work? What if you said, well, what do you like to play? What do you? Yeah. Do? And I guess we do kind of like, what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies? Yeah. And I've met a few people said, well, I don't really have any. And I'd kind of back away because those are people that are, uh, yeah. Right, right. Uh, uh, There's something in, they're sad and it's, and I'm not sure. Yeah. At the retreat, there um, was a pastor who said that uh, he was describing a time when she was doing a job interview um, uh, as a worship leader at a church. And, uh, and she said one of the most profound moments of her life in that interview was when the pastor said so what do you do for fun right that that was kind of and kind of what you're saying i mean what if that was and she just said that the question was really kind of world shifting for her you know Mm. it's like why does that even matter and then she thought oh it does matter doesn't it you know and kind of yeah 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 that sabbath is supposed to be the first day of the week which uh i don't really Think about. No, wait. Hang on. I'm getting confused. It's Sabbath the last, the day, last of the day of the week, right? But last but day we, of the week for Jews and in the creation story, Christians moved it to the first day of the week. Right. Right. And then it just got collapsed into the weekend, and I don't really know what it means. Right. And then it's just kind of a big mess. Yeah. And then if if you're if you're a pastor, you just say it's or or if you work on the weekends, you just say it's that's just whenever. <laughs> <laughs> which uh which i'm not sure is is in the spirit of the of the of the concept but that's another topic i guess for another we need to do an episode on sabbath sometime yeah we should yeah. that would be fun because yeah. i have thoughts yeah because um, yeah it, it yeah so so moltman talks about in this did you want to explore your thoughts on sabbath now no. Okay, okay. But they were bouncing in my head. Well, I do think, now that I've said no, I have permission to say yes. I do yes. think there's a weird bit that Sabbath and playing games can be a type of usefulness or productivity because you can become legalistic. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. one way to think of legalism is work-based. So you kind of, you have to be useful. You have to follow, right? And and so in board gaming today, which I don't know what Walt Mom would make of it, but you are supposed to play the hot, we have the list of the hot games and you should have a copy of these games and know these games and play these games and you want to get better at the games and it can be more work than play, ironically. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Like sports, you know, it started right. out as right. kids throwing a ball in a hoop and now all of a sudden it's a billion dollar industry. Yeah. You know, Kevin, you and I have been talking beforehand um, I, I'm going through a time just for a variety of reasons where I'm a little bit a little bit busier at at, at my work than I, I have 
sometimes been in the past and or often been in the past just kind of variety of reasons and i have been that's given me less time to play games mm. and i've been feeling guilty about it right i've been i've been feeling right. kind of what you're saying you know and and it's i mean that kind of misses the point if i'm feeling guilty for not playing games yeah that kind of misses the point i miss the, i miss the games i wish i could play more but i i'm not sure playing feeling guilty about it is something that I know what you mean. I feel right guilty approach. that I have them and I'm not, while well, I have more time than you right now, it, it, there are games that I haven't played in a while and I feel guilty about, well, I should give it away or sell it or do something with it because why would you own this and not use it? Hmm. Unless hmm. you're just a collector and you want to have them. Right. But, right. So I feel guilt about having games that I haven't played in a while. Hmm. Hmm. So yes, the, it becomes not about play, but about guilt. Well, let me like ask a, you this: Which ones yes. are which ones are tempting you the most right now? What would you play if you could play anything oh. in your set? What would you play? Mm. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I really do like Brass Birmingham. I love I love that. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it is I like a good, crunchy, complex game which I already know the rules for, you know what I mean? Kind of like, I, mm-hmm. I like, I, I, I love learning rules, but at this point, just at this particular moment in my life, um, I almost kind of want to go back to something that's comfortable, which means maybe not going through the process of learning the rules and just playing mm-hmm. a nice crunchy game that I already know. Um, I, um, I, I've, um, we we I got a copy of Hansa Teutonica about half a year ago, and I really, mm-hmm. and I played it a little bit of it. I really like it. I'd love to play that some more. Um, I don't and know that then, one, but I mean, I've heard of it, but I've not ever played it. Yeah, yeah. And then I just got in the mail the other day. I think something I I um, crowdfunded uh, about a year ago. Uh, a GNC. Um, um, by Carl Chuddock. The people that make vitamins and supplements? Yeah, right, it does sound like that, right, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Your own that's, nutrition corp company. Yeah, yeah, you have to move these cubes uh, to add vitamin K to the... Um, <laughs> to the supplements. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's and, good. Uh, I, it's, um, but you have to be careful of not getting too much folic acid. I don't even know what that right. means. Um, no, this is... A, a e g e a n space c the uh, the Aegean Sea the body of water around uh, Greece and it's by Carl Chudik um, and I've liked I like I, I it's multi use cards and I love multi use cards and um, which is a game mechanism and uh, I I would love to be able to sit down and really play that but uh, but it just wow yeah so how about you what what do you if you could play anything right now what would you be playing. I got a game in of Root recently, which mm. I love. But I'll tell you what, I've realized recently there's a trap with Root. That's oh. that there are so many expansions and you add them and you want to try the new characters, but then you don't really understand them. And the way the mm. game is, the other people need to understand them too. And mm. it just becomes a whole teaching learning experience and not the game. So mm. I think if mm. you really want to play Root, just buy the core game. That's all mm. you need and just play the heck out of it. Yeah. And if you yeah. really 
have played the heck out of it and find you're tired of those four classic primal critters, then add on. But we're so we're so tempted in the board game community to want to get all the expansions, but it just doesn't work with Root because they're just too dang hard. Because you've got to know this character and the other characters because you can't beat them if you don't know how they work. Mm, but it was mm. still fun. But yeah, we were kind of dig, digging and scratching our heads a little bit. Uh, that's been good, uh, though. I do still love the game. And then Frosthaven. We mm. busted that out again recently after a long hiatus. I just love the Gloomhaven, Frosthaven stuff. It really is more of a puzzle. It's almost like Sudoku mm, because mm. you've got your cards and you've got to figure out when and how to play them within this limited dungeon space yeah, by yeah. a certain time. So it's just such an interesting game because it is not dice-driven and it's not, I don't know. It's not that somebody has the magic elder sword and they can just carve them up. It's more of like coordinating together when to play certain cards at certain times. I, I, yeah. What is a game? It's more of a puzzle. And it's yeah. really satisfying. Hand management? Is that kind of the I guess that's the mechanism, that but I'm thinking, I want to say it was Sudoku, but Sudoku is figuring out an answer to a puzzle. Is there a game, something that's not a board game, but is there something like that where it's all about the timing? Hmm. Miniature golf? <laughs> Where you've Miniature got the golf. big spinning uh, you know, wheel and you have to like you have to time hit it, it at just the right, right time to get it to, to curve get... down. I like uh, it. I don't know, I like but it. it's just such a delightful little game as well That's as in awesome. getting to upgrade your character and you're like, oh, I got a new card. So yeah. I love it. You I don't know, care you're, about you're... the other stuff. I mean, I like, I like getting a new character. I like the upgrade and I like the puzzle of a level. The other yeah. stuff is not, you know, doesn't matter. One of the many things I love about you, Kevin, is that you're a person who can compare Frosthaven to miniature golf. I think that's, I know, a, that's, right? a, that's, that's a great, that's a great, it's a great comparison. What other podcast plays this card comparison? at the right time? That's yeah. right. That's right. You're talking about expansion. Thank, thanks for sharing. And, and Root, um, got me <clears> thinking about, you know, we, we had Mandy uh, Hutchinson on this podcast from the Salt mm -hmm. and Sass podcast. Her co-host, Suzanne Sheldon, also on the Salt and Sass podcast, has made the observation, I think, that um, once she gets an expansion for a game, she's found that she doesn't play the game anymore. That's so... And I've kind of found that, too. With a few exceptions, I have found that, too. Do you, do you, do you, do you find that's true in your life? Yes, I do. I really do. It's a curse. And I guess Why it kind of makes sense that it, it's kind of, it's like you fall in love and you're really excited. And then, then you add something on that makes it not just a simple, I'm in love with this game. Like all of a sudden it becomes too complicated. Yeah. I think that's right. A, yeah. I think that's right. And yet we keep buying the expansions. At least I do. Yeah. So it's like, some part of us maybe knows that it changes this thing that we love and we may not love it as much anymore. And yet, and yet I buy the expansion anyway. I know because yeah. you love it and you're like, Oh, right, I've got to right. get the expansion and we are completists. So we most right, of us right. want to get the collection and you're like, well, if I love this, I'll love this other thing. Well, no, it, it, it really makes it. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it makes it more complicated. And especially if you have a bunch of games, the chances that you're going to play that game enough that you need the expansion are almost nil. Right, right. Because the truth is you're only going to play it a few times in the next year. That's right. That's right. Because you're going to play other games. Yeah, that's, that's, I had not heard it verbalized that way. Uh, that's a powerful way to put it, that if you buy this expansion, you will not like this game as much. <laughs> right, right. Doesn't right, make any sense. Right, right. Well, you know who also loved to play expansions, especially of um, Frosthaven and uh, Miniature Golf, was Jürgen, uh, Jürgen Moltmann. Yeah, Jürgen Moltmann. <laughs> he, he, he's famous for it. He, uh, he would buy... Uh, I don't know if any of this is, no, I, yes, he, yeah, all the expansions, all the expansions, um, <laughs> he's known for it. Um, he's known for I it. I love um, Catan. He actually knew Klaus Tuber. Yes. Yes. And, I uh, and got all the expansions. Up. Yeah. Oh. I, I, it'd be cool to have expansions for miniature golf. It would be like, um, be. like, um, like rocket propelled. Mm-hmm. golf balls or something like that or or um yeah drone you well, could anyway. get a drone so you could see we can get a drone holes. yeah i have a um i have a first edition of theology of play that was annotated by jürgen moltmann and in the comp you can see where he was writing it and yeah, underlining yeah. some of it he actually lists his board games it's really interesting that's fantastic yeah. Guard that with your life. That is a precious, yeah. precious book. I, think I really liked Twister. It was strange. Was that his number one? I was going to ask for his number was one. Number three, I think, is Twister. <laughs> number three. Number, number three. three. <laughs> That's great. I know. That's great. Uh, I should have I known. I don't have a first edition. Known. I'm kidding. No. Yes. So, so getting back to Moltmann, I know we're approaching here the, the end yes. of our episode. Are there any themes from Moltmann page 15 through 24 that we you think we've not gotten into yet that is important to get into. Uh, so this bit that follows up is that we imitate God when we mm-hmm. are playing. So I think that's a theme of we are liberated creatures. We are set free because of God's creation and God's intent, but also because of God's redemption, we are liberated and we should act more like it and we should be more playful and be the child. And um, we do that by imitating God and having the freedom to play. So that's really, that's really right in our wheelhouse, these ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that, yeah. And I, I think something that he lifted up that I hadn't thought of quite in those terms, in terms of how we imitate God through play, is that um, play slash creation, maybe in Moltmann's, in Moltmann's argument, um, allows the player or the, the creationist um, to engage in, I think, what Moltmann calls self-representation, um, which I think today we might maybe say self-expression maybe, but this, you know, like this quote of, like you talk about the birds, you know, this, this um, he talks about this Dutch biologist um, Butendiek that I know you, you found this quote, um, Kevin, mm-hmm. but this idea that, um, you know, this over the top extravagant diversity of birds, uh, with colors and songs and things like that, that, that ultimately that leads someone to think there's gotta be some, some element of self-expression in that, right? That in other words, like birds are singing and colorful, not just to get mates, you know, not just for the function mm-hmm 
the, the function of it, but just to express themselves, right? To represent right. themselves. And, and it got me thinking about, I mean, that's what a gift of play that is for us, for us as human beings too, right? That we play just to express ourselves, right? And, and that there's something inherently good about that freedom to, yeah. of self-expression and, and, and self-representation. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm, I wonder what he meant by representation. And I like that you put it as self-expression. And I think you're right. Yes, that we get to have agency and we get to participate. And we get to do something that is not work. So, yeah. and the birds are not really hunting when they sing. They are communicating or maybe looking for a mate, but, but it's going, it's also a bit unneeded. Mm-hmm. Right, they're doing it out of joy. I know why right. the caged bird sings is Maya right. Angelou's famous book. Uh, nature is more beautiful than it needs to be, and we right. can perceive its beauty, and that suggests God's purposes and our place within them. Yeah, which yeah. is really amazing. Yeah, I, it, Dave Bindewald, uh, a former guest uh, on, mm-hmm. on here. If you want to, listeners want to go back and listen to the episode with. Um, can games save the world with Dave, Dave Bindewald? He talks about that moment of um, almost conversion for him when he realized that there was like, what, like 200,000 species of beetles in the world or something like that. Or I forget the exact number, but he just talked about what a converting almost moment that was for him. It's like, that's hmm. so extravagantly over the top, right? We, the world doesn't need 200,000 species of beetles, and yet right. we, we get it, right? And just what a what a glorious playful reality that is you know um, yeah oh, that's a great way to put it a glorious playful reality and so like a child we need to receive the kingdom of god like a child which is a t- teaching of jesus and we do that because god made us that way and god seems to be someone who does play dice with the universe right mm. Like God does play a game in a sense. Mm. And I yeah. love that, that Maltmain says we can be absorbed and serious about a game, but transcend ourselves in knowing it's just a game. And that's something that's haunted me through all our conversations mm. is this idea that games are this artificial thing. You open a box, it's got a ritual bit, you set out the stuff, you play it, and then like a good ritual, it ends. Like you put mm. it up in the box and you walk away. Or like, mm. you know, the, the mass has ended, the church service ends and you walk away. Right, right. Uh, that's a very haunting bit. So it, it's important while we're playing, but also it's just a game. And I think that's hmm. such a marvelous way to think of sort of being aware that what we're doing is not important, which is what makes it important. How much of that do you think is a metaphor for like everything? I think it completely is. I mean, I guess we've got to eat and we need to help make the world a better place, right? But still should come out of a place of joy. I don't know. What do you think? I guess I'm a little afraid to make it too. I know. I know. I've been, I've been just pondering that too. I don't know the answer as well. You know, all this talk about play being unnecessary, it kind of begs the question, well, what is necessary, right? Right. And is, is, is anything Necessary, depending on and goodness and those sorts of things, maybe. Yeah, Ethics. yeah. Is it necessary, or is it? But we don't do them because they're beautiful. Is it just we a reality? Because we should, right? Isn't right? Like I, 
like I guess what I'm wondering like is like maybe we think of food as a necessity well we need sustenance that is a necessity or right, else you right. can't right yeah I, I mean know. in the I, sense that this none of this has to be here so yes to some degree the world is not necessary the cosmos would go along just fine without us so to that degree yeah it all it is all unnecessary mm-hmm. correct right but given the preciousness of life it seems necessary that we do things to preserve and help life even though so, we can choose not to we have free will so whether something is necessary or not is dependent upon where we set the bounds of the game maybe yes yes <laughs> i don't know oh i think my brain's starting to hurt and i'm hungry speaking of necessities you gotta right. gotta listen to the microphone that. need some more tahine have you ever tried tahine spice i've tried it with my daughter has introduced it to me she eats it on her watermelon mm-hmm. it's good yeah cantaloupe yeah. Yeah. yeah it's good yeah yeah i like it there's like another it. spice that i've learned that's hispanic origins mexican maybe maybe they're both mexico i'm not sure adobo spice have you tried adobo spice i don't think so it's kind of funky sweet and you put it on a hamburger delicious adobo not you adobe on, on you think hamburger. it'd be adobe like a house adobo adobo okay and you put it on a hamburger interesting huh mm. good stuff okay next time i'm excited about next time do you, uh as well do you want to do, do you want to reveal it do you want me to reveal it you reveal it okay next time next time dear listeners kevin and i are going to be talking about uh, i gotta i gotta do the voice i gotta do a voice for this um the seven deadly sins of gaming um well, i was trying to do seven those, deadly the creep creepy dune stuff oh i like it i like it the seven deadly sins of gaming on next episode and that'll be fun um, it'll be fun yeah it's yeah. kind of scary but kind of fun it's yeah kind of the sc- seven deadly sins of gaming. The seven deadly sins of of gaming and uh spoilers one of them is um eating doritos i don't know i don't know i made that one up we'll see We'll see. You have to come back and find out. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to find out. Um, in the meantime, Kevin, how can people find us? They can find us at boardgamefaith.com. We're especially active on Instagram. So find us on Instagram. And if you uh, would like to add a photo of yourself with a favorite board game at a place of worship, hashtag boardgamefaith. Yep, yep. Be great. Always glad to see those. And if we can ever be a support for you um, and your place of worship or wherever else you may find yourself in terms of providing resources for thinking about the theology of play and the intersection of spirituality and board games, uh, please check out any of our other episodes or reach out to us. And we'd be happy to, to talk with you about that as well. We love talking yeah. about this kind of Info stuff. Info at boardgamefaith.com. Yep. Yep. Um, well, okay. um, Kevin, thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much for um, spending a part of your day with us and uh, being willing to listen through um, a little bit about uh, this this fascinating book. And uh, we are so grateful 
for you and uh, for your uh, your spending time with us. It's it's a it's a privilege and a gift, and we're we're grateful for you. Goodbye, friends. Take care. Bye, Kevin. Bye bye.